All right, let us continue with the study of the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. That's what we have been looking at for the past couple of weeks. We've been looking at the authority of the Scriptures, the inspiration of Scriptures, the authority of Scriptures, and tonight we're looking at the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And these three, they go together, right? Um, in other words, we look, the Scriptures are sufficient because they are authoritative, because they have God's authority. And the Scriptures have God's authority because they are inspired, meaning they are the very words that God has breathed out. Because God has breathed out His Word, that Word then is authoritative. It carries final authority. Hence, we talk about the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. And notice that um, it's a very specific term. We say the Scriptures are sufficient. Because sometimes we may use like different layers of language to refer to something that we draw a benefit from. And we, for example, could say, you know, that's, that's helpful. You know, it provides some level of help. Um, <clears throat> like, for, let's say that you are working out. And on top of that, you start taking supplements. And we say, well, that's helpful. It's not, it's not, it's not really or altogether necessary to take supplements, right? But it is helpful. So sometimes people think the scriptures are helpful <laughs> among a whole slew of other things, but do they think they are necessary, right? Necessary. Now, um, another layer would be to speak uh, of the scriptures as necessary without them being sufficient, for example, you may say um, that ingredient to cook that dish is necessary. But it does not speak of sufficiency, of completeness. So I think a lot of Christians, while they wouldn't speak as just the scriptures being helpful, they would say they're necessary. But them being necessary does not rise to the level of being sufficient. When something is said to be sufficient, that means nothing else is required. It is final. It is all that is required. So I think in the view of many Christians, scriptures are a necessary ingredient but there's other things that may be necessary, such as tradition, such as the revelations of certain prophets, huh? such as certain things that we do, you know, um, <clears throat> whether it be, I don't know, meditation or yoga or something else. Because obviously, meditating on the Scriptures, that goes together with the Scriptures. But in other words, to, to say that a lot of Christians do not view Scriptures in its sufficient character. And they think that they need to be complemented with something else. Whether it be tradition, philosophy, psychology, um, the revelations of new revelations, right? The word of man, etc., right? So it is a doctrine of the word of God, and the Reformation supported that contra Roman Catholicism that the scriptures are sufficient. Hence the term sola scriptura. The scriptures are sufficient. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to deal with tonight. And uh, we're going to use the Belgian Confession, Article 7, that deals precisely with the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures 
to be the only rule of faith. And it reads as follows. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God. <clears throat> and that whatsoever men ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than, than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul saith. For since it is forbidden to add unto or take anything from the Word of God, it does thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof, the doctrine of Scripture, is most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men, however holy these men may have been with those divine scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude of people or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees, or statues as of equal value with the truth of God. For the truth is above all. For all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule, which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits whether they are of God. Likewise, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. So a very comprehensive statement, right? By the Belgian Confession on the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. And you can see here in the background, um, obviously, you know the history of the Belgian Confession. It was um, in the context of um, those that in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands were fighting um, Spanish rule and Roman Catholicism. Guido de Bray, which it's, his, its author, um, is um, credited to have written it, obviously probably with a contribution of others, but that was the, the background. So you always hear in the background of the reformers and their confessions, right, this struggle against those that have a different view on the Holy Scriptures because they add something, some other source, of at least of equal standing or sharing authority with it. In this case, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's tradition, right, and popes or councils, or a school of divines, or a magisterium. So, in distinction and in the struggle against that, the reformers put forward, um, <clears throat> based on the scriptures, that they are sufficient in themselves. We already saw that with the doctrine of the canon, which we just finished dealing with the last couple of weeks, that the scriptures validate themselves as it is the nature of any final authority. Any final <clears throat> authority <clears throat> does not need an outside source of validation. Sometimes people want to validate the scriptures whether it is with their reason or with some external evidence, whether it be historical whether it be someone, some authority uh, of man to support the authority of the Scriptures. <clears throat> and it is the nature of whatever it is that is ultimate authority to not need outside validation. And we used analogies for that, right? 
Um, in a home, parents are the final authority. And they don't draw that from anyone outside of the home. They are the final source of authority, right? In a corporation, the CEO, whoever it is that's in charge, they are the final authority. And it doesn't require going outside of them. You know, they don't draw their authority, final authority by definition, um, is that it is self-validating. It doesn't need another one in back of them. Otherwise, you have a, a bright, a regression at infinitum, right? <clears throat> if you always need something outside of yourself. So final authority, by its own definition, uh, rests with that uh, center of that locus of final authority, in this case, God, His Word. We need not go beyond them to, to validate the authority of the Scriptures. So the Holy Spirit, we said, <clears throat> bears witness to us of that truth, of the truth of the Word of God. It's something that validates itself to us. Is something that does not need to be explained by any other external, outside, or supporting evidence. Which, of which there could be many. <laughs> Obviously, you know, creation testifies to the existence of God. And the laws of nature and <clears throat> the laws of, um, of the heart testify to, even to the word of God conscience, etc. But at the end of the day, the reason we accept them or anyone accepts them is because they have come face to face with the truth. And the truth is self-validating. So on the basis of that authority that comes from the word being inspired of God, then we say we are in the presence of something that is sufficient. Hmm? And it's sufficient to reveal the will of God. And we're going to see how the Bible uh, presents and makes that case. So let's begin uh, once again by reading 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 15 through 17. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So what are the Scriptures sufficient for to make you wise for salvation? Right? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Notice the sufficiency of scriptures is that it makes you complete. <clears throat> Notice that? In what sense complete? It doesn't make you sinless. We're not sinless, right? We're not perfect in the sense of having arrived at ultimate moral perfection. But it makes you complete in the sense of making you mature. Meaning that we can, we are equipped, enabled, and empowered of God to serve God and neighbor in good works by the Spirit of God. And according to the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> so is there anything else that's necessary according to this passage? Is there anything else that is required of us? See? And this, this is very important in today's day and age where we live in an environment where people are seeking after new revelations. Hmm? They're seeking after prophets and all kinds of <clears throat> other sources and avenues of hearing from God, right? 
if the scriptures are sufficient, we do not need anything else. We, everything we have, they, everything we need, they provide. So what do we need? Well, we need doctrine, cor reproof, correction, instruction, in order to be mature, to serve God in good works. That sums it up. Okay? So it is the scriptures that provide that. They are sufficient for that. Doesn't mean that the scriptures are, as we mentioned before, a medical manual or a financial guide, right? Or a book of relationships. While the scriptures may address issues in those areas, <clears throat> that is not ultimately what the scriptures are sufficient for. In other words, by reading the scriptures, you do not become an economist or a medical doctor, hmm? or an expert in relationships. Not necessarily, okay? But the scriptures do help you, right? Manage your finances and be wise and manage your household, and it makes you wise for relationships, etc. So sometimes... You know, we look at the scriptures as a comprehensive manual on everything. And while the scriptures have a way of reaching into every area of life indirectly, okay, what it is doing first, essentially and foremost, is making you a mature man in Christ, thoroughly equipped to serve God and neighbor. In keeping with God's will. Okay? That does not mean that you may not need the help of a financial counselor, right? Seeking a medical doctor, learning about this and that from other sources. Do we get that? <clears throat> Lest we turn the Bible into a book that it's a manual for everything. No, they make you wise for salvation. And in this sense, not only is it's the sense of making you wise to get saved but making a wise in the comprehensive, broader sense of being not just saved, but also sanctified and growing in Christ. Okay? The scriptures are sufficient for that. We need nothing else. They are the means by which God does this. Hmm? <clears throat> Let's take a look at Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God of, and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Notice again, <clears throat> His divine power, has given to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of God. Where has this knowledge been given unto us? In the promises of God that are found and communicated to us in His Word. So, in knowing the promises of God, the power of God is at work in the, revel in the illumination, enlightening our minds, and grounding us in those promises. We have in that knowledge everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Again, wisdom for salvation. See? <clears throat> 
See, if we begin to conceptualize a Christian life that way, sometimes we want answers that have not been given because they're not necessary, you know, because they are not the will of God, that we have them or that we know them. It's not the path that God has for us in this life. How many of us have struggled with certain things, right? Certain questions, certain dilemmas in life, certain wonderings, you know? But let us not lose sight of what we have. Because what we have reveals what it is about. If it's, if it's not been revealed, it's because you don't need it. It's because it's not about that, Right? So what is it about? It's about growing in the wisdom of salvation. It's about, it's about becoming that complete, mature man. It's about living in the knowledge of the divine promises of God that are sufficient for life and godliness. In this passage, it continues on for this very reason. And then there's a list of the fruit of the Spirit. So I think it highlights what the Scriptures are sufficient for. They are sufficient by the power of God and the Holy Spirit of God in our lives to conform us to the will of God, which is to bear more and more fruit by His Spirit in the image of Christ. <clears throat> the rest, the rest is providential is secondary, and God is in control, and it could change. And we don't have the answers to those. Why didn't I marry so-and-so? Or why didn't I get this? Or why didn't I, you know, why did so-and-so die? Right? And why did this happen? So, so those are sometimes things that can trip us. Hmm? Why did this happen to me? Or why did this happen to my family? Right? So sometimes these things paralyze us, cripple us, and we feel we're missing something. But we're not. You know, we have been saved, called of God, and given everything that pertains to life and godliness. That we may grow in maturity, in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, in being conformed to the image of Christ, and whatever path that takes, and how God takes us through those paths, right? It's God's providential dealings with us that at the end of the day, um, it is that the process and the outcome of it, in terms of this that God has sent, that that's the good purpose of God for our lives. That's the good purpose of God. It's like we hear in Romans, right? To those that are called according to His purpose. And then we hear in the following verse, Romans 8, 28 through 30, that the purpose is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. So that should be how we ought to view the success of our lives hmm? in terms of that. That doesn't mean that we don't work, that we don't plan, that we're not diligent, that we don't build, that we don't prosper, that we don't study, that we're not engaged in vocation, professions, jobs, etc. It doesn't mean that we, because that is, that's a venue of life. Hmm? And those are the vocations and the God-given realms, stations, seasons, and life opportunities in which God will do this according to His sovereign will for each one of us. Right? But we need to be clear then on what God is after in our lives. Lest we then just take what is um, not the essence of it and we get tripped by it. We are, and we'll get to that because I want to further comment on this because I think this trips a lot of Christians. When we don't get answers, when we get 
you know, when we suffer in the world, when things don't turn out to be as we expected, when tragedies in life overtake us, when we're beset by tragedy, suffering, circumstances that were not foreseen or expected, like finding yourself in the middle of a war zone and having bombs raining on you. Anybody foresee that and plan for that? Yet, it's been God's sovereign will to allow that to happen. To have a loved one taken to COVID or to cancer, you know, to have a loved one lost in an accident, etc., right? So those things, we will suffer in this world. In the world, you will suffer. I think it's very important that we are armed with that mindset. So that suffering will not surprise us. It will always affect us. We will always resist it. I'm not saying that we have, you know, that we become masochists, spiritual masochists or anything like that. But that we ought to expect suffering and difficulty and trying circumstances because we are on pilgrimage. <clears throat> we haven't arrived yet. With that mindset, we can lift the good times, we can enjoy God's gifts, while at the same time knowing what it's about, right? And focusing on what it's about, which sometimes trials bring us back to, bring us back to that realization that we lose sight of. So... His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn to 1 Peter now, chapter 1. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 22, <clears throat> through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> since you have, verse, 1 Peter 1, 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, for sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So notice what the word is sufficient to do. It is sufficient to purify your souls, to cleanse, to wash your soul, to wash your conscience. Another way of saying, what does that mean? Is my soul dirty? How is it dirty? Do I have to run it by the, the washer and dryer? <laughs> the way that the soul is dirty is that your conscience is guilt-ridden and shame-filled, right? And fear overtaken. That's how the soul is enslaved. We hear that literally in Hebrews chapter 2. Those that were held in slavery to Satan through fear of death. So we are purified in soul when we are delivered from guilt, freed from shame, and boldened, emboldened against fear with the peace of God. The Word of God is sufficient to do that. You have purified your souls in, obe in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Notice, through the Spirit. And now we begin to see that Spirit and Word work in tandem. They do not work separately. The Spirit of God works in, with, and through the Word of God. And where the Word of God is at work is with and by the power of and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So it is the Holy Spirit that purifies our souls because it communicates the promises of God that deliver us from guilt, shame, and fear and makes us now assured, secure in the promises of God in Christ for the love of the brother. I want to emphasize for because here, um, in, in my translation, it uses in. 
And uh, I think the Spanish translation has a better, uh, better translation of the original. It's for, para el amor fraternal. Habiendo purificado vuestras almas por la obediencia a la verdad mediante el Espíritu para el amor fraternal. Having purified your souls in obeying the truth, that's the gospel, through the Spirit, is in the Greek for the love of the brethren. So the love of God that is poor in our hearts is a consequence and a fruit of believing the gospel. The scriptures are sufficient for sanctification, meaning to bring us to a sincere love of the brethren with a pure heart. You know, not with a sinless heart, with a pure heart because we have been, our consciences have been relieved, set free to love without fear and to serve and to extend ourselves because we are secure in Christ. Verse 23, now notice a connection here with the word. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. So the seed of incorruptibility, the word is perfect. It is clean. The testimonies of God are clean. They're pure. Another word that is used is it's, the word of God is perfect. It's another, word, another way of speaking of the sufficiency of the word of God. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Notice again, it's the word of the Lord that endures and that rescues us from from us passing <clears throat> from our vanity. Now this is the word by this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. By the gospel, which is the good news of Christ for us, right? Our redemption. Chapter two, therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's what the scriptures are sufficient for. Notice it's sufficient to not only give you the new birth, but to purify you. Hmm? To sanctify you. To set aside the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the, the lusts of the flesh. The scriptures in giving you that assurance, that hope, that comfort of the gospel, it sanctifies you. <clears throat> Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Because the scriptures testify to the grace of God. If you have tasted of the Lord and his grace in the scriptures, desire it, seek further that effect in your life. That's, that's how God saves us. That's how God sanctifies us. By the hearing of faith. We hear that in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> in Galatians 3, notice again the combination, the wedding, right? The weddedness of spirit and word. Beginning in verse, um, five, verse 5. Therefore, Galatians 3, 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question, right? Because the Galatians had begun by the Spirit. To begin by the Spirit, as opposed to the flesh, is to begin by the hearing of faith. Hmm? The hearing of faith. What does that mean? 
you hear God's promises and that quickens you. That gives you life. It's not any doing of your own. It's not any works that you perform. You hear promises. You hear the word of God and it makes you alive. That's how the spirit works in our lives to give us the new birth, to quicken us. But here's the problem with the Galatians. They had begun like that. But now they wanted to continue on to maturity and perfection by the flesh. Now they wanted to add circumcision. The Judaizers had come along and said, that's fine, you have begun by trusting in Christ, but now we must add and do other things in order to get us further along in our growth process. And Paul says, you foolish, you fools, haven't begun by the Spirit? You think God is going to carry you along now by the flesh, meaning by works? So what Paul is emphasizing here is that, as Paul says in Romans, the righteous shall live by faith. From faith and to faith. That we are, God is always at work in us by the hearing of his word. You want God to work in your life? Come and hear. Open your ears. Give with an earshot of his word. He's always at work. And then by the word of God, he activates, right, your soul. He, he causes things to happen in your life, spiritually speaking, by the hearing of faith. Okay? <clears throat> he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Supplies the Spirit. So that's the ongoing work of sanctification. Right? Who works miracles among you. What kind of miracles are these? It's the miracle of becoming wise for salvation. It's the miracle of a person that is growing in Christ, becoming further mature in Christ. <clears throat> doesn't mean that God doesn't work miracles, okay? But here is what Paul is speaking is, is of being made perfect. As verse 3 says it, notice in verse 3, are you so foolish? Let's pick it up in verse 2, right? Let's pick it up in verse 1. Come on. <laughs> okay, Galatians 3.1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, right? Verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Notice. You hear that Jesus Christ is crucified for you as your righteousness, your sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, for your reconciliation with God. And you believe that and that's how the Spirit was supplied to you. That's how you began by the Spirit. You heard the gospel and you believed it, right? Verse 3 now. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Are you being perfected by the flesh? So notice, not only is faith at the beginning, but it's faith throughout. Not only it's faith to be born again, but it's faith to be perfected. It's faith. It's the hearing of the Word of God. It's how the Spirit works to begin the good work, and to bring it to completion. That is the way of the Spirit. The way of the Spirit is the way of the Word of God, which is the way of the Gospel, of Christ being proclaimed to you, your standing, the promises of God in Christ. So the Gospel is not just that little thing that we do at the end of a sermon to save on the unconverted. Christ crucified 
or the gospel is what we must preach to the church daily, weekly. The church has abandoned this for a pragmatic preaching of practical things, right? So they have abandoned the heart and the core and the hub of the Word of God that makes every spoke of the mature, complete person in Christ's turn to then concentrate on a little minutia of Today we're going to talk about depression. And then we're going to see what's, what we can apply to depression, right? And that is the approach that the modern church has taken to preaching. And I want to submit to you that there's nothing that works best for depression than to hear that you belong to Christ and that you have an inheritance with him. And that no matter how sad or depressed you are, he's got you and he's going to see you through. Because you've been justified and he's sanctifying you and you're suffering in this world. However, the Spirit of God lives in you and you are part of his plan of his church and you have a place among the body of Christ and you can come even as you are battling depression or whatever suffering it is and sit at the table with God's people and continue to look forward and receive the hope and the consolation and the comfort of the Scriptures in your life. And that sanctifies you. See? That prepares you. Because it is testifying to you of who you are in Christ. It is making you complete in Christ. Right? The other issues are addressed from that hub. You see? From that flow of spiritual energy and power in your life. Right? Of you being in Christ. Of your identity in Christ. Of the knowledge of God and the promises of God in Christ. Of the victory that overcomes the world. We, we, we don't have a faith simply to live in this world or to be successful in this world. We have a faith and we need a faith that actually overcomes the world. If this world is ultimate and the Christian faith is for the ultimacy of living in this world, you will always be a slave to this world. Does that make sense? The Christian faith, its ultimacy is beyond. It's over. It's in new creation. Hence, you are free to inhabit this fallen, faulty, suffering creation. And it is the same thing with everything in this life. Just finished a, a, a premarital counseling. And one of the things I tell in my final round is understand that your marriage is not ultimate. It's not the ultimate thing. It doesn't define you. You're not a husband or a wife. That is not your identity. Who you are is actually that marriage speaks to a greater reality. That who you are is that you are the bride of Christ. You're the bride of Christ. You are, you're submitted to the head that is your Savior who loves you to the point of giving His life for you. That is your defining essence and relationship and source of joy and hope and longing. And that frees you to inhabit marriage in all its imperfections, vicissitudes, and challenges, and, 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 the, and the hardness of it all. Same thing with the world, right? Sometimes we're just so, you know, focused on trying to make it in this world that we just continue to be enslaved to it because the world is our obsession. How do we overcome this, and how do we become better at that? And how do we, and this, this, and that. And we need a faith that overcomes that. 
We need a faith that hides us in Christ and gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that allows us to land back on our feet in very practical ways in this world. Because we now we do it with the Spirit of God and with the wisdom of the Gospel and with the sanctification of the Spirit in love. We see that also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We hear the following there. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Notice the combination of the Spirit, the agent at work, and the means, the Word of God. Right? So you have been chosen for salvation, and this is how God brings it about. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The sanctification by the Spirit is setting you aside in Christ. You're being said, how are you, how were you chosen for salvation? From God's mindset perspective, it's the fact that in this, by the Spirit of God, right, you would be set aside and given the knowledge and the faith to trust in Christ. So, the Word of God and His Spirit. The Word of God testifying to Christ. The obedience of the truth of the gospel. And that's how you are sanctified or set aside or purified in Christ, positionally speaking, once and for all. Right? To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures are sufficient for. To obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To obtain to that glory. As Peter said, to make us partakers of the divine nature. Now we, are being, we have been justified and now we're being sanctified. In keeping with that image, with that glorious virtue, life, relationship, joy, love. That is the bond of the triune God that he shares with us now. And lastly, let's go to uh, John chapter 14. <clears throat> We're here in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all things that I said to you. So notice the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is going to send and he did send the Holy Spirit. What did the Spirit do? The Spirit would do what? Would teach you all things. And bring to you remembrance all things that I said to you. Where is that found? In the Word of God. Not only did the Holy Spirit complete the canon. But the Holy Spirit now illumines and enlightens our minds with the canon. With the Scriptures. With the Word of God. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. To sanctify us in God's Word. That is the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Right? As a result, let's take a look at um, John 15. In John 15, we hear Jesus say, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And then verse 3 says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Notice, the word of God cleanses you. Wow. You're clean. Why? What have, what have they done? They've heard and they believed by the Spirit. Hence, they're clean. You're clean. You're already clean because of the word. And then the admonition, abide in me. Abide in my word. Without me, without my word, you can do nothing. 
Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Because when the words of Christ abide in us, we begin to pray, pray in the Spirit. (laughs) What is praying in the Spirit? We begin to pray more and more the will of God. That's praying in the Spirit. We're praying, keeping in accordance with God's will. And then it is done for us. We don't get everything we want just because we pray it. (laughs) No. When His words are abiding in us and we're being conformed to His will, that's what we desire. And that's what we pray. Hence, we pray like Jesus, let that will be done. Not mine. See? We submit. We surrender. We receive what God has prepared for us. John 17. A couple more, we we close. John 17 here. um, Notice what it says beginning in verse 14. John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There it is. That's where the scripture, they are sufficient to keep us from the evil one, to sanctify us, to guard us, to protect us. through Christ Jesus. Romans 15, 4. This is the last one. I love this verse. In Romans 15, 4, we hear the following. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Notice how interesting. Hmm? The scriptures provide patience and comfort. You wonder why am I so impatient and so filled with anxiety? Is it related to a lack of hearing the word? To a lack of abiding in the word? So if you need patience, strength, comfort, hear the Word of God. You know, get plugged into a consistent pattern of hearing the Word of God, of abiding in the means of grace and the comfort of God, the strength and the patience of the Holy Spirit, which is the consolation and the comfort and the patience of the Scriptures will be supplied abundantly to you. Amen.